And now if you could please ride for the scripture lesson today, which is Revelation 2, 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the, son, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sick, onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. So there's a lot here, uh, <laughs> and we will get into it. Um, but before we do that, uh, I did not email administration at the right time. So I'm actually titling this bondage in the name of freedom, not what you see printed in your bulletin. Um, but before we dive into the context of this passage and what's happening here, I want to ask a question. Have you ever met someone who is a part of a family with an inheritance? Uh, now, I'm not talking about like the worst of that. This isn't like Mona Lisa and John Ralphio in in Parks and Rec who are like, money please. Uh, but imagine for a second that you knew that in your work and your uh, striving to um, figure out what you're called to and to make a name for yourself in this world, you knew that you had an inheritance. Imagine the comfort in that. These kinds of people would operate in the world a little, dif a little differently, wouldn't they? Because they know that they don't have to pave a way for themselves. Inheritance gives them rest. And as Christians, we have been offered, we know through the scriptures, a great inheritance in Christ through what the Bible calls adoption. See, the Bible teaches that adoption is an act of God's free grace where Christians actually become sons and daughters of God and thereby inherit Jesus's reward and rule. And yet in this passage, we will see that some of the members of the church in Thyatira are still trying to pave their own way. They're still trying to make a name for themselves rather than rest in the name that Jesus has given them. And this actually is folly because our pursuit won't give us what we long for. Uh, in the words of Jim Carrey, he says, 
I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. This passage is going to be really similar to last week in a lot of ways, but it has some key differences. So if you were with us last week, uh, we see that we saw in Pergamum last week um, that the letter of the church in Pergamum was corrected the church of their practice of idolatry. And in doing so, the letter alluded to the Old Testament figure Balaam who told King Balak to entice the Israelites to engage in idol worship with sex and feasts. And similarly, the church in Pergamum was being persuaded by the false teaching of this group of people called the Nicolaitans, who enticed the church to compromise their faith by participating in local cult festivals. And all of this was motivated by a false belief in what would truly satisfy them. See, what we saw is that true satisfaction actually comes through the promise of the white stone and hidden manna. That is, Jesus is the one who gives us the white stone. That is the invitation to the real feast that satisfies, the wedding banquet of the lamb. And he is the bread of life that we truly long for. And similarly, in our passage today, the church in Thyatira uh, is also being corrected of their toleration of another false teacher among them. This time, however, it's not the Nicolaitans but it's a false teacher identified as Jezebel who has influence in the church. Now Jezebel is likely not the name of the individual themselves, but it's an allusion to 1 Kings 16 through 22 of Queen Jezebel, a figure who led uh, the Israelites to practice idolatry by incorporating worship of Baal and the practice of cult sex and feasts into their worship of Yahweh. And here also in Thyatira, this figure is telling the church to practice idolatry by participating in the cult festivals where people would eat food sacrificed to the idols as a gift from the God themselves and to engage in sexual immorality. So key difference between the two. Whereas the lie in Pergamum was that true satisfaction of the soul was in the pleasure of these festivals. The lie believed in Thyatira was was that the people of Thyatira still needed to pay homage to the guilds to pay their way, pave their way in the world. See, Pergamum continued to worship idols because they believed that it was too fun to pass up. But Thyatira worshiped the cult gods because they believed it was necessary to make a name for themselves and to have an inheritance. See, the lie was that because these cult gods were not the real god, Christians are free to keep grinding on and paying homage to the dollar no matter what the consequences were for the sake of the inheritance and name Uh, name of the promise, uh, name promised by the guild. But what we'll see is that true inheritance is not found in the guild, but in the morning star, Jesus, and our inheritance is in him. So as we said the previous weeks, all these letters contain an affirmation of something the church is doing well, a correction of a way the church is faltering, and a motivation towards faithfulness. So here's the outline of what we're going to talk about today. So the affirmation is that the church has exhibited faith, service, Uh, patience and growth and grace. The correction is that they're tolerating false teaching and the motivation is the morning star and our shared inheritance. So first the affirmation. We see that the church is actually commended for their works. In verse 19 uh, it says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patience endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. They say that they know their love and faith. This this was a church that had not forgotten their first love, like we saw in the first week as we talked about Ephesus. They had not abandoned their faith. This is a church who committed themselves to service. 
This is a church who lived out Jesus' command in John 13 to his disciples where he says, just as I have loved you, love one another. This is a church who patiently endured. See, it's not easy to be a Christian in Thyatira, as we'll talk about later. And yet this church is patiently enduring. And finally, this is a church whose latter works exceed the first. They're actually growing. They're being commended uh, for their faithfulness as being greater than when they first became Christians. And so who is this church? Well, some commentators claim that the seven letters are what's called a chiasm. And what that means, if that's true, is that one in seven are the worst churches, two and six are the most faithful churches, and three through five are the most mixed. We're on church number four. And so if this is true, that makes Thyatira the most normal of churches. Amongst it, many members are faithful, loving servants of Christ who continue to grow in grace and love of neighbor in ways that are mostly unseen by the watching world, but very much seen by Jesus. And yet amongst them also are a lot of people who are not following Jesus. And so before we dive into uh, the correction of this church, I think it's important to remember its faithfulness. See, God continues to work through the church whom he's called, who he loves and calls his bride. And today, I think we can maybe most identify with Thyatira as a small church in Madison, just trying our best to grow in grace and love of neighbor in a time where it's understandably really complicated to be a church. See, for every scandal which we should be the first to mourn and to seek justice because God hates when his people become wolves among his sheep. But for every scandal, God still continues to work through his church and their faithfulness. And so what would it look like to remember in our cynicism that God continues to work? And what would it look like to be encouraged of this when we feel unseen? So first we see that they're affirmed for their works. But second, they see that they're corrected for their toleration of false teaching. So the church is tolerating uh, the teaching of a woman named Jezebel maybe a woman, the point is the illusion. Um, so uh, before we do that, a word on tolerance. Uh, Tim Keller says, tolerance isn't about not having beliefs. It's about how your beliefs lead you to people to disagree with, uh, sorry, lead you to treat people who disagree with you. So tolerance isn't about not having beliefs. It's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. So this letter isn't commending the church to be a jerk. Like, that's not what it means when it says uh, that it's a problem that they're tolerating uh, this woman Jezebel, that Jezebel. They've already approached this person in verse 20. But belief in Jesus does entail us to a turn from worshiping the idols of this world to worshiping the Savior and Lord of the world. And so who is this false teacher? Well, like we said earlier, Jezebel is an allusion to Queen Jezebel in 1 Kings 16 through 22. The person in mind in the passage was likely a woman, but not necessarily. Um, and this influential person in the church in Thyatira, who is said to have claimed to prophesy, was teaching the church this. They were teaching the church to compromise to the guild practices of idol worship by stressing that these things have no power over Christians. Because they don't have power over them, they should do them. And this false teaching is primarily about idolatry. Uh, one commentator says, her name is a synonym for seduction to idolatry. The Old Testament regularly uses language of sexual immorality or infidelity to speak about idol worship. Just think of the uh, prophet Hosea, if you're familiar with that text. And so primarily, this is about idolatry. 
not about sexual immorality. But secondarily, it is about sexual immorality because participating in the guild feasts inevitably involved that. So what's being accused here is that this is about idolatry. But this idolatry, uh, as we saw in our introduction, is really about inheritance. If you were to do a study of the city of Thyatira, you would know that this is a trade city. See, it's where in order to succeed financially, you had to be in a guild. And these guilds all worshiped and they paid homage to a god. So if you were a potter, you became a part of the potter's guild. And the potter's guild worshiped ex-god. And that's who you had to pay homage to through a cult feast. If you were a smith, you did the same for your guild, and so on and so on. One commentator, Henderson, said this, the situation therefore was somewhat as follows. If you wish to get ahead in this world, you must belong to a guild. If you belong to a guild, your very membership implies that you worship its god. You will be expected to attend the guild festivals and eat food, a part of which is offered to the tutelary deity and which you receive on your table as a gift from the god. And then when the feast ends and the real grossly immoral fun begins, you must not walk out unless you desire to become the object of ridicule and persecution. To be a Christian in Thyatira was incredibly difficult because it could mean giving up the inheritance promised by the guild. It could mean less financial success and less social influence. But this problem was even more complicated than we probably think at first glance. And that comes through this question of what the heck are the deep things of Satan? Like, what does that mean? Well, this is probably a misapplication of 1 Corinthians 8.4. If we were to take a look quickly at 1 Corinthians 8, we would see that this is a, a part of Paul's letter to Corinth in which he's talking to the church about whether they should participate in cult meals, whether they should go to these festivals and eat meat offered to idols. And this is his argument, really briefly. These um, gods in whom you are going to their festivals have no real existence and no real power. Therefore, you should not go to festivals and eat food offered to idols because it's a stumbling block for others. And yet, this teacher here is telling the church in Thyatira that because these, these gods have no real existence, they should go to the festivals and they should participate. And so her argument, according to Henriksen, is this. In order to conquer Satan, you must know him. You will never be able to conquer sin unless you have become thoroughly acquainted with it by experience. In brief, a Christian should learn the deep things of Satan. They should even do this to become a better Christian. Uh, summarized another way, uh, some may even have embraced a teaching according to which the Christian's freedom from sin means that he or she can and perhaps should explore the satanic depths, going boldly into the enemy's camp just to show how invulnerable one is. Pretty interesting, right? But as, as looking through this, I can't help but think of uh, a poet named Robert Hayden and what he has to say. Uh, he says this, We must not be frightened nor cajoled into accepting evil as deliverance from evil. We must not be frightened nor cajoled into accepting evil as deliverance from evil. We must not turn vices into virtues. See, here the church in Thyatira was pursuing the false inheritance of the guild and saying that this pursuit was in the name of their deliverance in Christ. But we too are tempted to do anything for the inheritance promised by idols too, I think. Uh, just think of it this way. Keller says this, an idolatrous attachment can lead you to break any promise 
rationalize any indiscretion, or betray any other allegiance in order to hold on to it. It may drive you to violate all good and proper boundaries. To practice idolatry is actually to be a slave. These words in verses 22 through 23 often feel really harsh, don't they? They're likely symbolic, but they're symbolic of the real action of God in response to idolatry. And we can be tempted to believe that these consequences would make God immoral or evil, but it's actually because God is loving and just. He doesn't want us to be a slave, and he will not stand for injustice toward his bride. These words should cause us to live in holy fear of God, but they should also comfort us by his care for the purity and survival of his church, that he cares about his church. And so what uh, does this application look like, this correction? What false inheritance are we tempted to seek above all else? I don't know what this is for you, um, but here's a few possibilities. For some of us, we are tempted by the false inheritance of the American dream, that achieving our highest vocational or financial aspiration is always worth the cost. It's always worth the cost to our families, to ourselves, to others, that a paid off mortgage and all the kids going through college without debt is worth the cost to our marriage, our, our long neglected relationship with God, or fill in the blank. We can be tempted to believe that the false inheritance of good reputation is worth it. We're tempted maybe to lie or even silence injustice that is happening for the sake of the reputation of the company, of our family, or maybe even of the church. We're tempted to uh, seek the false inheritance by, by tipping our hat to the grind. Are we like Thyatira trying to make a vice into a virtue? Sometimes we really do have to endure a difficult period, but sometimes do we compromise the call to Sabbath rest because we care more about the promise or reward of being a good student or a good employee more than the the promised inheritance in Christ? Do we boast about our 80-hour work weeks? Do we boast about our four all-nighters for the exam as if our worship of work is actually a virtue? Uh, Let me be the first to say uh, that pastors are no different in this temptation. Uh, If you meet uh, four pastors, two of them are probably more workaholics than anyone you've met in your life. Uh, And so this is uh, something that I'm working through as well. Um, But how are we making, uh, how are we believing the false inheritances around us rather than our inheritance in Christ? And so what's the sudden shift in this passage? Well, the sudden shift happens in verse 24. When the author uh, turns from those who are being corrected to other members of the church who are remaining faithful, and he says, to you I do not lay any other burden. While the guild lays all sorts of constraining obligations for inheritance onto its members, we see in verse 24 that no other burden is being laid on the faithful. It almost seems to echo the sentiments of Jesus in Matthew 11, who says to come to him all who are weary and to find rest. We all follow a king. We were created to follow someone, whether we are ruled by money, whether we are ruled by patriotism, whether we are ruled by even making ourselves the king, we all follow a king. And there's only one whose rule does not lay on you any other burden. There's only one ruler in whom we find a true inheritance. 
Jesus doesn't rule out of his own need or scarcity. The nature of his kingship is different from all other kings. He is the king who died for you. And so how is Jesus the answer to the problem? We see this in the motivation, that Jesus gives us a greater inheritance than the guilds can ever give us. Jesus is the true king, and more than this, he is the king whom we long for. We see this in the very beginning of the passage. Jesus is called the Son of God, which echoes Psalm chapter 2, a messianic psalm predicting the one who would come. And this would be familiar to the people of Thyatira because the patron deity of the, of the bronze trade was Apollo Tyromenius, who appeared on the local coins with the Son of God, that is the Roman Emperor Caesar. See, yet here, the long-awaited king is not the emperor, but it's Jesus. And this king has eyes like a flame of fire. See, Caesar claims to be the eyes of the kingdom, and yet it is Jesus who has eyes of fire. It is only Jesus who, when he searches, we see in verse 23, is actually able to see the mind and the heart. It's like the toppling of the eye of Sauron in Lord of the Rings. See, the author is toppling Caesar and the false inheritance he says he can give. And it's only Jesus whose feet are burnished with bronze. These are no feet of clay that can be toppled, like in Daniel's vision in Daniel 2, which predicts the Roman Empire. Yet Jesus' feet are burnished with bronze. They're firm. And even in the end of the passage, Psalm 2 is alluded to again when it talks about him ruling with an iron rod which is another direct quote of this messianic song. And like Psalm 2 tells us, the nations are his heritage and the ends of the earth his possession. He is more powerful than those who claim to have all the power, Caesar and the guilds. He is actually even the morning star. If you were to turn to Revelation 22 through 16, 22, 16, the very end of the book of Revelation, you would see that it explicitly said, Jesus is the morning star. And as the morning star rules the heavens, so believers will rule with Christ. And so this is a restored dominion, just like we see in Genesis chapter 2, that humans were created to exercise dominion. Jesus is restoring that. The promise is that we are actually, if you believe in Jesus, being made a co-heir with Christ. Your inheritance in Christ is better. He rules over all the things which vie for our affections. He rules over all the things which tell us to give them everything for empty promises. Yet King Jesus, the Son of God, gave his very life so that you could share in his inheritance. So how does this unfold in our lives practically? Well, some of us here uh, might be feeling pretty jaded to this. This is just what it takes to be a student. This is just what it takes to, I don't know, work at Epic. This is just what it takes to run a company. I don't know. Yet, following Jesus might look like doing the things that are unpopular. It might look like reporting that thing that's not okay, even if it makes us a social pariah. It might look like working 50 hours a week when everyone else in our company works 80. What inheritance might we, believing, might we be believing is better than Jesus? That's a tongue twister. Um, others here might be feeling weary we might uh, be practicing faithfulness and we're just exhausted. Well, my encouragement through this passage is just that you would hold fast to him. That you would see uh, 
you would see and know that he sees your faithfulness and he does not lay on you any other burden. Remember your inheritance. Others here might be exploring who this Jesus is. And my encouragement to you is that Jesus is a better king and a better inheritance. What would it look like to come to him and find rest in his grace? What would it look like to make him your Lord rather than be lorded by the false things of this world? And so as we conclude, um, hear the words of St. Augustine as he reflects on what it means to share in this inheritance. He says this, What did he bestow on them? He is Jesus. So what did Jesus bestow on them? Great kindness, great mercy. You see, we were not born of God in the same way as the only begotten son of his, but we were adopted through the son's grace. For the only begotten son came to forgive sins, those sins which had so tied us up that we were an impediment to his adopting us. He forgave those he wished to make his brothers and sisters and made them co-heirs. No, he was not afraid of having co-heirs, because his inheritance is not whittled down if many possess it. They themselves, in fact, become the inheritance which he possesses, and he, in turn, becomes their inheritance. So, friends, why should we serve any other king? Our inheritance in Christ does not come out of any scarcity. We don't have to compete with each other for it, like other false inheritances tell us. Our inheritance in Christ is given to us by his free grace. What other king does not lay on us any other burden? King Jesus does not rule over us harshly, but he deeply loves you so much that he calls his church his inheritance, his beloved bride. And so let's remember this good news and hold fast to him as we approach the table. Let me pray real quick. Jesus, we come to you this morning and confess that we are often tempted to believe the false inheritances of this world. We believe that participation in these things of which you call us away from will actually give us what we want. And we're tempted to believe that because of our freedom in Christ, we should obey these things rather than rest in you. God, would you free us and remind us of the beauty of who you are and what you've done? Would you remind us that your inheritance is all we need? Would you give us food for the, food for the journey? Help us if we are exhausted. Remind us in this table that you nourish us, that it is finished, and yet you still remain. We lift all these things in your name. Amen.